This is Nursing Australia, proudly brought to you by APNA, the Australian Primary Healthcare Nurses Association. Welcome back to another instalment of Nursing Australia. Now, International Women's Day is coming up in a couple of days on March 8, 2023. And to celebrate, we have some stellar women on the podcast today. In fact, three of them. We have Natalie Wisher, the CEO of the National Association of Diabetes Centres and the Director of Foot Forward, an Indigenous and non-Indigenous amputation prevention project. We have returning to us this episode, Dr. Aleli, a senior lecturer and associate professor at Western Sydney University. And we also are welcoming Pali, a senior program officer at the WA Department of Health. Now, Natalie presented at the APNO Conference Roadshow in Melbourne at the back end of last year. Her presentation was on Indigenous health, where to from here. We have grabbed the highlights of this, popped it together in a fascinating segment today about Indigenous health. And here is just a taster. Just a bit about who I am and why I'm standing here today. I lived in Aboriginal communities in the Western Desert. I sat in the dirt. I will literally say sat in the dirt for three years. Firstly, I'm going to say we've got to get the lingo right. We've moved away from Aboriginal. Um, Aboriginal can be Aboriginal of America, Aboriginal of many different countries. So we're moving a bit away from that. And also Dr. Lady, originally from Nigeria, is now living in Sydney. As I mentioned at the top of the show, is a lecturer at the University of Western Sydney and is this month's March 2023 featured nurse. So sit back, relax and be inspired as you listen to her incredible story. I relocated to Australia. I was applying for a job. I didn't get a job anywhere. I applied to child care center. I applied for cleaning. I applied for any kind of job that you can think about, but I didn't get that job. So I decided to start all over again. I went straight to do my Bachelor of Nursing Honours and got scholarship to study PhD. And since 2009, I've been researching African migrant women's health. And finally, last but not least, Polly Holsworth will speak to us about immunisation in Western Australia and across the continent. Over 83% of childhood immunizations are conducted in general practice. We really heavily depend on general practice to conduct immunization services in the community and protect them against infectious diseases. Now let's kick things off with the latest in healthcare news with Mitch Wall. As always, thank you for joining us here on Nursing Australia. This is episode 56, it's March, 2023. This is Three Women. Happy International Women's Day. Nurses stung by PTSD, AI tech to prevent falls, aspirin improving prognosis for cancer patients and the prescription filling Hunger Games. This is Nursing Australia News. Hello, I'm Mitch Wall. A recent report commissioned by the New South Wales Nurses and Midwives Association found 15 out of every 100 nurses and midwives report having high levels of post-traumatic stress symptoms that would meet the criteria of PTSD. New South Wales public hospitals are facing a mass exodus of senior nursing staff, suffering trauma and burnout from overwhelming workloads. This leaves younger and less experienced nurses outnumbered and at a greater risk of abuse from frustrated patients. The survey of more than 2,300 New South Wales nurses working in public hospitals, most with more than a decade of experience, found that nurses bore the brunt of the overwhelming pressure from the healthcare system, with more than half planning to resign. 
a falls detection technology developer, an aged care provider, and Deakin University's Applied Artificial Intelligence Institute have partnered to run a three-year, $10 million trial to try and predict and prevent falls. The study will see more than a thousand devices installed in aged care facilities across Victoria in the first year, with a range of data collecting and monitoring systems, as well as clinical data from nurses. The AI-powered assistive technology device automatically detects when something is wrong, such as a fall, incident or illness symptom, and can alert caregivers within two seconds. Along with falls detection, the product aims to go a step further and try and predict and prevent falls. Aspirin may extend the survival of women in the late stages of ovarian cancer, an Australian study has suggested. A team led by researchers at QIMR, Berghoff Medical Research Institute in Brisbane, set out to find what factors could improve the survival of women after the diagnosis of the disease. The study has found the affordable and widely available supermarket drug aspirin is associated with increased survival for ovarian cancer patients by an average of two and a half months. Two and a half months doesn't sound like a big difference, but for ovarian cancer, out of every 10 women who are diagnosed, five of them won't be alive five years later. QIMR's Professor Penny Webb speaking with Seven News there. A diabetes drug in short supply for almost a year has led to what one doctor has described as the hunger games for patients trying to fill their prescriptions. Semaglutide, a weekly injection sold under the name Ozzemapic, was approved by the Deputy Goods Administration for lowering blood sugar in adults with type 2 diabetes, but can be prescribed off-label to aid weight loss. There has been a global shortage of the drug for almost a year, with the TGA advising that the drug will be unavailable until an expected return to regular supply at the end of this month. You're listening to the Nursing Australia podcast. Indigenous health. Where to from here? If you missed the APNA Conference Roadshow in Melbourne last year, you would have missed a session on Indigenous health. What's new in the past couple of years? Where do we go from here? Natalie Wisher is the CEO of the National Association of Diabetes Centres and the director of Foot Forward, an Indigenous and non-Indigenous amputation prevention project. She also spent, as she put it, three years sitting in the dirt as a remote area nurse in the Western Desert across in Western Australia. Natalie speaks to us about appropriate language, rates of diabetes in remote Aboriginal communities, the effects of colonisation on diet, the rate of diabetes in Aboriginal communities, the ongoing health effects, stolen generations, drug and alcohol abuse, suicide. She also talks to us about the concept of healthy Indigenous communities. So buckle in for an incredibly informative session on Indigenous health, where to from here. Just a bit about who I am and why I'm standing here today. I've spent a lot of time in different areas of Australia. I lived in Aboriginal communities in the Western Desert. I sat in the dirt, I will literally say sat in the dirt for three years, in some of the most remote communities in Australia, in Western Australia. And this painting here was done by my Aboriginal mother, and um, I I love it. And I I might say I did a few dots in there as well as she taught me how to dot paint. I'm now the CEO and probably been involved with the NADC for the last 10 years. That's a diabetes not-for-profit association. And also directed over the last two years Foot Forward, which is an Indigenous and non-Indigenous amputation prevention project. So, yeah, I've got a little bit of an area of expertise 
So firstly, I'm going to say we've got to get the lingo right. So what's in a name? And names are very important. So does anyone know how many different Aboriginal, Indigenous, First Nation languages there are in Australia? <laughs> so we get two answers that are nearly right, 250 different languages and about 800 dialects. So where I was, and I will tell stories throughout today that three years of sitting in the dirt, I understand the value of telling stories. So up here where I was in the Nunundara communities, part of the role was teaching Aboriginal health workers, environmental health workers about sanitation and those sorts of things. And I saw a fantastic video from the next communities along and I thought, oh, yeah, I get all the words. This will be fine here. And I went and used the video and they all sat there and go, I don't get it. <laughs> the language was completely different. We've been using in a lot of documentation recently the term First Nation because we've moved away from Aboriginal. Um, Aboriginal can be Aboriginal of America, Aboriginal of many different countries. So we're moving a bit away from that. We're also moving a little bit away from Indigenous as well. But at the same time, it's best to just ask, what do you feel comfortable being called or referred to? So when I was in the desert, they just said, the mob, just call us the mob. <laughs> and it seemed not quite right to me, but that's what they wanted and that's what they identified. So just ask. So what's in a label with diabetes, diabetic? When I got into diabetes probably some 15 years ago, we used to say diabetic a lot. So we'd use it as a label. And people with diabetes say, I'm diabetic. However, I was taught 15 years ago and still today in the diabetes world, they are a person first with diabetes. So it's the same as epileptic. They're a person with epilepsy. Now you might say they're minor little semantics but they are kind of important because we quite easily get into labelling and think words around compliance and things like that and it does put a stigma to people with diabetes. So if you can retrain yourself and then your colleagues as time goes by that's a really great thing and let someone come in and say I'm a diabetic. Don't change what they say, that's fine. So I'm going to give you a little bit of an overview of First Nations. So because you guys are all so smart, what country has the highest rate of diabetes in the world? Pakistan. And a lot of the Polynesian islands have around 25.5% of their population. So Pakistan had 30%, China has 12.4%. America has 15%, so that's pretty high. And you can see on this um, graphic here that the rates of all these countries are only going up. Does anyone know the rate of diabetes in Australia? <laughs> it's, it's 5%. Does anyone know the rate of diabetes in remote Aboriginal communities, like where I was sitting for the population over 50 50% if they're over 50. So you can imagine the outcomes aren't fantastic. I was very fortunate where I lived in the remote Aboriginal communities that they were still hunting and gathering, semi-traditional semi lifestyle. So they were pretty fit and healthy, but many of the other communities closer to Alice Springs and Kalgoorlie didn't have that privilege. And there's really a massive problem. 50 over 50. 
please don't forget that stat. And nine times more likely to die of diabetes than non-Indigenous Australians. Just a few more stats before we go on. Indigenous Australians have been around for over 60,000 years, the oldest population that we know of in the world. The population of Aboriginals in Australia is around 800,000 to a million. In 2015, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people were more likely to have diabetes recorded as a principal cause of hospital admission compared to non-Indigenous. And in 2015, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people living in New South Wales, Queensland, South Australia, WA and Northern Territory died from diabetes at five times the rate of non-Indigenous Australians. And just want to mention here that type 2 diabetes is very much a lifestyle disease, as many of you will know, and only been introduced since Whitefella has been around. Type 1 diabetes was not known when they were here without us. So we have introduced both, I think. So one of the questions that I get asked frequently is why? Why does this happen? Why aren't they exercising? Why aren't they eating the right diet? Why aren't they looking after themselves? And I've... (laughs) I've got a really clear perspective on this because I lived in a remote community and I got to understand how they used to live traditionally. The people we were living with were still hunting and gathering within the last 10 years of me being there. They used to wander around. The family networks were really complex, so they couldn't stay in the same place any given time because they would have overused the wood, they would have overused the food, they would have dug for all the um, yams and everything and got all the everything that they needed, they needed to then move on. And I'm talking about particularly desert here, but you've got to remember there's coastal and there's all different areas, but it was very intrinsic how it all worked and very complicated. We then, when white fellas came in and colonised these areas, we took most of that away. So in the Western Desert where I worked, Maralinga was a big thing out there. They gathered all the Aboriginals up in areas to keep them safe, said, you all live together. You're not supposed to live together, but you all live together and we'll provide you with some basic housing and stay here and we'll give you food and you don't need to hunt and gather, you don't need to exercise, just stay here. What would happen? There was fighting. There were issues because they weren't meant to spend that much time together. Who's meant to spend that much time together? They'd use all the resources, so there was no timber to burn, you know, heat your things. There was not enough resources for everyone. They had no sense of purpose. They had no daily jobs to do. So the benefit too was they were being provided food, nutrition, water, but the quality of that was terrible. Absolutely terrible. They were given sugar, jam, flour, tea, just really refined, highly processed food. And then you add on to that all these issues around, you know, were they taken from their families? A lot of Aboriginals back in the, you know, 60s and 70s were removed, if not after that. The marginalisation, the feeling that you're not part of current society, the unemployment, the poverty, alcohol and substance abuse. We had a big issue with petrol sniffing because there was nothing else to do and then the brain damage that goes with that. Domestic violence, accidents, deaths, suicide, horrible. 
There's no easy answer. One of the reasons I went and did my midwifery was because I had a massive issue because Aboriginal people have been delivering their babies with their families for so, so many years before I got there and other white fellas got there. And then as soon as we were there, we wanted to medicalise the model and ship these you know, ladies out four weeks before they were due to a hospital, put shoes on, go by yourself, go in a plane and sit in a ward and wait till your babies come and you don't have your family around you. Anyone that's had a baby knows the things you want to do is have your family around you. You want a bit of sort of routine, you know your comfort levels. So it was akin to removing them from what they're used to as sending us out to the desert. But we, in a very paternalistic model of health, look at, oh, there's low birth weights. There's babies that aren't surviving during labour, so we've got to ship them out so we can save these babies. And all I can say is those ladies were very clever in working out how to come back after they'd been shipped to hospital before they had their babies. So many still did have their babies on land, which was important. The other massive difference with health in Indigenous populations and I think in culturally and linguistically diverse populations more so than white Anglo-Saxon populations is we know that health, the World Health Organisation, you guys would know this, health is a state of complete physical, mental, social wellbeing, not merely the absence of disease and infirmity. So... With Aboriginal people, health is about the whole family, the whole community, the whole network. So if you went and said to someone, oh, you've got diabetes, let's fix your diabetes, and you didn't involve the community program or their family members, you've lost them. It really is about the community and the family. So it's important to remember that, particularly if you're engaging with Aboriginal people, but also people of culturally and linguistically diverse groups. So just a quick reminder on diabetes and the impact. So you would remember macrovascular disease is one of the major impacts of high blood glucose levels in diabetes. So it affects the brain. It affects the heart, high blood pressure and insulin resistance causing heart disease and extremities. So we have peripheral vascular disease leading to ulcers and amputations. Then the microvascular, we've got eyes and the effect on eyesights and retinopathy. We've got kidneys, diabetes and nephropathy. We've got sex organs, so erectile dysfunction. We've got extremities, impact on diabetes-related neuropathy and the mouth, periodontal disease. And I've probably left quite a few more off the list as well. So it's critically important with diabetes management that we're avoiding complications through uh, lower blood glucose levels. So what do we do to make a difference? Firstly, can I just ask how many of you do actually see people reasonably regularly that are Aboriginal interesting because I'm Melbourne based or was Melbourne based and I have to say when I left Melbourne I had never met 
an Aboriginal person. I think we'd had one child at the children's hospital where I was working at the time, might have been flown down from the Western Desert. So when I arrived in the Aboriginal community for my three-year term, uh, it was the first time I'd interacted with Aboriginal people, so I had a lot to learn. And I have to say, many a time when I was doing a diabetes consultation, I'd never talk about diabetes. It just, there were so many other issues we had to cover first and that rapport had to be built before we could get to the other stuff about diabetes. So that's a really great point. So this list I've got here is very generic and this is why I say it can be applied to any chronic disease. So what do we do? It's really important that we do person-centred care. So that's part of the rapport building. It's getting to know them and what they're all about. We involve them in the decision-making. And it's interesting, I say that, and one of my experiences which, you know, was challenging at the time, I had many challenging sort of thoughts when I was out in the community, was we have a very paternalistic model of care out in the communities but in a way, sometimes they want that. They want you to tell them what to do and when to do it. And that was a bit challenging because I was trying to um, share that autonomy and decision-making with them. And sometimes they didn't want it. And I have to accept that. You have to accept it as clinicians as well. Listen. So self-management education, so there's a lot of diabetes resources and other resources out there that can empower them to understand their chronic disease. So for example, in diabetes particularly, there's a resource called Feltman and it's a very visual, very tactile resource to explain diabetes. And the first thing before you ever explain diabetes to an Indigenous person is to say, why do you think you have diabetes if you don't start with that question you will be giving white man you know medical model of why they have diabetes but if they believe they got diabetes because the bone was pointed at them then you will be talking at cross purposes and don't please don't ever I don't like saying don't ever but please don't ever say that's not right or that's not true to them, it is true. To them, that is the, the reason why they're coming to see you. So listen to that and then explain some of this white, you know, pathophysiology that we need to explain but in an appropriate way. Always important, no matter what type of person you're meeting with, is ask them why they feel they have been impacted by this chronic disease, including diabetes. So health literacy, I am sure you guys are all over health literacy and you probably, like me, fall into uh, illiterate kind of medicalised conversations regularly, but really important to ensure that the resources you provide are appropriate. And we developed at NADC a series of resources that can be sent digitally for diabetes. We call it PEARL. Patient Education Resource Library and it's a series of patient-led videos, it's fact sheets because one of the interesting things about those living in remote areas, those in third worlds, you might think they don't have a lot of technology but most of them actually have a mobile phone. It's really fascinating in some of the poorest countries around the world SMS messaging can be one of the most effective methods of health education that you can get. There's 
a type 2 diabetes course provided for people living with diabetes that they can do online from home. That's all people with diabetes. There's a lot of brochures and posters, and I think it's really important to utilise, you know, the appropriate posters and brochures around your clinic. And I certainly know when we're involved with accreditation as a hospital and a, a community health centre, it was important to say we recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people saying, you know, culturally and linguistically diverse and making them feel warm and welcome. There's a lot of pictorial guides and I think pictorial guides are really important. So when I'm talking about remote Aboriginal communities and why I've told some stories is because that's how they learnt. Sitting down in the dirt and telling stories, putting a stick in the dirt and the sand and drawing, telling stories and drawing pictures. So it might seem patronising, but you've got to work with the learning styles of the people you're sitting in front of. So it's really important to understand what their learning style might be. And there's an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health diabetes e-learning package. And that is actually for health workers. It's for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people but I think it's actually a fantastic course to give you some um, cultural understanding and um, cultural safety understanding as well. So I encourage you to have a look at that. All of these are free, by the way. Again, the National Diabetes Services Scheme have a peer support group. Uh, they have lots of videos and uh, fact sheets. Really, so much education can be done. People are hungry. When they get diagnosed with a chronic disease or for example, diabetes, they're really hungry for information right at that time. And if you don't provide information, they'll go on to Google. And you know what they find out in Google is not often very true. So I would think it's a really good time to actually provide education up front at diagnosis, even if they have to wait, you know, two, four, six weeks to go and see a diabetes educator, for example, they could have had some really good information and fact sheets. Health Info Net is an Indigenous resource hub. So it's got resources for people with diabetes, but it's also got resources for healthcare professionals. So when I started the Foot Forward project and wanted to understand the landscape of what resources had already been developed for people, Aboriginal people that had diabetes and foot disease, I went straight in there. It's, it's a great library. Unfortunately, there's a lot of gaps in what resources are available, but if there's anything developed, it'll be on Health InfoNet. Now, do you guys have this on your desktop? If you don't, please do. I still to this day use this guide, the RACGP guide, and that's kept up to date every two years. And you don't have to have a hard copy. It's all online now and you can search it. And a reminder, the Foot Forward project that I have led over the last two years and has certainly aged me by 20 years, we've developed patient risk quiz so they can go on and do a quiz as to their risk of diabetes-related uh, foot complications. I'm going to give the final word to Professor Alex Brown. He will introduce himself. He's an incredible role model. I did want to give him the final word because I think that cements and summarises uh, everything I wanted to pass on. About 50% of people over the age of 50 will have type 2 diabetes in Aboriginal communities. This is enormously problematic. These are levels much greater than we see in other communities across the country. We also know that there's a whole raft of social and emotional factors playing out in the lives of Aboriginal people in the state as well. And this paints a picture of a really complicated interconnection of social disadvantage 
and high burden of disease. And we really need better systems of care that understand those needs and can respond. My name's Alex Brown, I'm Professor of Medicine and Aboriginal Health, and I lead the Aboriginal Health Research components of the Faculty of Health and Medical Sciences. Our research involves really targeting leading causes of health and mortality inequalities experienced by Aboriginal Australians. This is the story of heart disease, diabetes and cancer. Our work focuses on not just the risk that Aboriginal people may have and how it may account for higher rates of disease, but also trying to understand what drives the inequalities we see in outcomes, how the healthcare system does or doesn't do its job, and interventions that will make a difference over the long term. How do we build better ways of caring for people with need? Over the last seven years, we've been able to undertake very comprehensive health assessments on all participants at this stage, almost 1,400 Aboriginal people right across the state. That information is provided directly to the healthcare provider, who's able to utilise that to develop healthcare plans for those individuals. We've provided direct training to health service providers. We've directly informed policy in the state and for the nation more broadly on the back of the findings we've been able to identify through this project. The thing that really drives us on is the fact that we're dealing with a population that has such profoundly poor outcomes. What drives me every day is the unfairness that we see in front of us with the experience of health and wellbeing for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. Our job's not done and no matter how many successes we have that are small, none of them really amount to the impact that we really want to have, which is making sure that the next generation and the generation after that of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander kids have a fair go in Australian society. That's our fundamental objective and we won't really stop until we've had a better go at that. Natalie Wisher speaking there on the latest in Indigenous health. APNA's Nurse Support Line provides primary healthcare nurses with access to timely, relevant and accurate advice, resources and referrals. If you need support, please call 1300 303 184. So on last month's episode of the Nurse in Australia podcast, you heard from our latest guest on her specialist topic, female genital mutilation and cutting, or FGMC, as it's often abbreviated as, She's an associate professor at the School of Nursing and Midwifery at Western Sydney University and has led several research projects, including caring for women, living with female genital mutilation, and is the founder of the African Women's Health and Support Organization. An incredible person, an experienced nurse, a researcher, and a university academic. We at Nursing Australia just felt we needed to hear her story. But this time, in a more personal capacity, Dr. Lady will speak to us about her life in Nigeria, her life in Australia since coming here some two decades ago. She also speaks to us about what drives her to continue her work in the area of women's health and migrant and refugee health. She's a teacher, a researcher, and an advocate. This is her story. My name is Olaide Ugoshiji. I'm an associate professor in the School of Nursing and Midwifery, Western Sydney University, and I am a registered nurse. I'm originally from Nigeria in West Africa. I migrated to Australia in 1999. I was born in Ibadan. It's in Western part of Nigeria. 
I can describe myself as belonging to a middle-class kind of a family. My father was a high school teacher and he retired as a high school principal. My mom was primary school principal. So they were both teachers with five children and they were ready to put in everything they had to ensure that we were well educated. I can even say that the only house that they built, we can't say it's 100% completed because they prioritized our education. In an African country where girls' education are not prioritized, I really appreciate my father so many times saying that it doesn't matter what gender you are, everyone needs to be sent to school. And one thing that I knew is that I know that I belong to the university environment. I wanted to study accounting, but it's really competitive. And I actually spent about two or three years at home in search of admission. Eventually, I got admitted to this university in one of the states in Nigeria. And that is like from Sydney to Melbourne, from where I was born in Ibadan. So I left home with the intention of doing accounting. But lo and behold, for whatever reason, the head of school did not allow me to enroll in accounting. Here was I, I've been sitting at home for about two, three years, seeking admission to the university. And by the time I was excited that I've gotten admission to do the course that I wanted, there is another hurdle here. I got offered to do sociology, and that is how I find myself completing sociology. So I can't explain why I'm not an accountant today, but considering where my passion is going, Perhaps that is what it's meant to be. I'm meant to be in the human sciences and working with people. My husband and I met at the university because we were all residents on the campus and we were in the same faculty and from the same language speaking part of Nigeria. And he did accounting. And interestingly again, we are both from the same city, Ibadan, and it is a highly populated city. But where we are living is not more than six minutes drive to each other. And both our parents were attending the same church. But we did not meet, even though we were living close proximity. I think my story is just, <laughs> it's just, sometimes when I see that, I just think about it, I say, oh my goodness, you know. So my husband, he approached me to tell me that he was interested in me. And it was like maybe six years. And we got married in 1991. By that time, I just finished my master's. I then enrolled to start my PhD. And I started as a lecturer in that university. And I was in that university for about seven years before I relocated to Australia. It was my husband that actually got permanent residence. By that time, we already had three children, two girls and a boy. 
and lo and behold, we couldn't afford the cost of traveling here. The cost of flying was too exorbitant when you consider translating the dollar to Nigerian Naira. So he came and we came to join him about one and a half years later in 1999, November. My eldest was seven and the youngest was three years old. Everybody had their own dose of settling in a new country, starting from the children, being the only dark skin in the school. I thought I was going to be able to get straight into the academics that I was before I left Nigeria. But I was applying for a job. I didn't get a job anywhere. They were saying that I didn't have Australian experience. I applied to child care center. I applied for cleaning. I applied for any kind of job that you can think about. But I didn't get that job. So within one and a half weeks, I was already sick and tired of sitting at home and looking around. So I decided to start all over again. I decided to start studying. I remember my husband was saying, study something that is going to be meaningful to you. So I didn't mind nursing in terms of the flexibility that's around it, being family friendly. So then we went to Western Sydney University thinking that the form was still readily available. Then they told me that particular day is the last of the last for the application to be due. Oh, we were just quickly panicked. At that time, you know, it wasn't online. It was hard copy and everything. We quickly collected the form. We came home, completed it. My husband said, don't worry, some of the attachment, attach this, bring this document, whatever. We, are, we were able to put whatever we had. He said, you know, they will ask for the rest. Just submit it before the due time. And that is what I did. And I started my nursing program in February the following year. I already enrolled in Nigeria with the intention to continue to do PhD. That plan was still within me, even though I wasn't sure how it would materialize. And I did not forget that I had colleagues at home and I wanted them to hear that I've not fallen by the roadside. So all those were in my mind, even when I started my Bachelor of Nursing. Anybody that cared to hear, I took my time to let people know that this is what I want to do. Please do you know how I can get there. One important thing that quickly launched me there was this program they call Winter Scholar. The university paid students to work with experienced researchers. So, you know, that quickly, it was like a light bulb. Yes, I want to do research. I, I don't know how to go about it. One of the professors from my school of nursing wanted a research assistant. And I remember when I first met that professor, I told her that I would like to do PhD, but I don't know how to do it. And she took her time to talk me through. And since the time she told me that, I was working on it. I went straight to do my Bachelor of Nursing Honors and got scholarship to study PhD. was to start my PhD, I wasn't too sure of what my topic would look like. 
And that was the time of the influx of migrants and refugees from Africa. One of them, professor, said, Olaide, there is a niche area we do not know much about. As researchers, they knew little about the health of African migrants and refugees. And she asked me to go and think about it. Initially, I was wondering that it was going to be a very boring area. What am I going to be exploring? Would it really be exciting? I wasn't too excited about it. Not until when I started and I appreciated how limited the literature and research is in that area. Each time I type, you know, looking for literature to do my literature review, support my research, all that used to come out were about African-Americans. And one thing we know is that they have history, which is quite different from recent migrants. That then increased my curiosity to contribute to knowledge that will inform the care that is provided for African migrants and refugees, especially in Western countries. And that is what attracted me to topics like female genital mutilation, intimate partner violence, and breast and cervical cancer screening behavior. So the title of my PhD was Meaning of Health and Health-Seeking Behaviors of West African Women in Australia. I knew my PhD was not able to answer all the questions that are out there. And that is why since 2009, when I graduated, I've been researching African migrant women's health. I got a lot of support from the university, starting with seed grants. I've also received internal research grants and partnership grants, which enabled me to work together with primary healthcare providers, exploring their knowledge and experience of female genital mutilation and working closely with the community from Africa. They see me as an insider, a woman that knows where they are coming from. And I hold that as a trust to ensure that I make a difference in the life of these women. Through all my years of PhD, I was also working as a registered nurse. And not until 2019 did I stop working as a registered nurse. I see nursing as a profession that gives one the opportunity to get very close to the reality of life. And I still look back now and really feel grateful that I'm in that profession. Where I see my future headed is to continue researching the area of women's health, supporting African women, not only in Australia, but in Africa. Well, International Women's Day for this year is giving every woman equal opportunity, equal space, equal voice. And from the family, the society, the entire world will be a better place to be. And this starts with every mother, every father. I see myself in the position that I'm now because my father gave me the opportunity. Every girl child matter.
Thank you so much for sharing your story. Remember, if you liked what you heard or you missed last month's episode, it's titled Excision. It's available on all your favorite podcast listening apps. Just scroll back behind this episode. I imagine every nurse listening across Australia and across the globe is now feeling incredibly inspired after hearing such a wonderful story. Who has the time to wade through every piece of healthcare news? Primary healthcare nurses certainly don't. Fear not. APNA's Weekly Connect e-newsletter condenses key industry news into digestible content while serving up a feast of useful resources. Stay in the know and save time. Subscribe for free at www.apna.asn.au. Polly Holdsworth is a Senior Program Officer at WA Health. She spoke at APNA's Conference Roadshow in Fremantle on the topic of immunisation. Now, Australia's rates on immunisation are okay. They're pretty good comparatively to our Western counterparts, but they're not where they should or could be, particularly in some communities which perhaps suffer some level of disadvantage, whether that be uh, geographical, social, uh, socioeconomic, etc., I'll leave a quick chat to our producer, Leith Alexander, about all things immunisation and what nurses can do to help raise the numbers into getting more people immunised. So my name is Pally Holsworth. I'm a senior program officer at the WA Department of Health, the immunisation program there. And I'm speaking at the APNA conference in Fremantle. What I'd like to leave with the general practice audience is the fact that over 83% of childhood immunizations, so under five-year-old immunizations, are conducted in general practice in WA. This is quite different in different states where they may have more local councils or, or other service providers. But in WA, we really heavily depend on general practice to conduct immunization services in the community and protect them against infectious diseases. The other point I'd like to make that is specific to WA again is that when we look at the data, and this is looking at data over 10 years, we find that immunization rates amongst our Aboriginal children, especially, are one of the lowest in the country. And we're working very hard with a lot of our partners, including general practice and Aboriginal medical services, as well as our community health services, to have different projects so that we can work together with our Aboriginal community and make sure that they're well protected. As we know, for example, with influenza, if you were to have the disease, you don't actually get sick and die from the flu. You actually die from complications of the flu, and that would be maybe pneumonia. And so it's it's so easily preventable, and that's why we call it VPD or vaccine-preventable diseases. But yet we see throughout the world really high rates of influenza. Do you have any practical tips for nurses working at general practices or nurses in general about how they can help bring up those statistics, especially in, for example, Indigenous populations? Yep, absolutely. So we're very fortunate in Australia to have something called the Australian Immunisation Register. It's a national database that's linked to your Medicare account and it gives you, whenever someone receives a vaccine in this country, they have changed the law so that it's now mandatory that those vaccines get reported to the national database. Um, And other developed countries, including the US, 
do not even have a national register. So there's many countries that are very jealous of Australia's ability. And we've had this register in place from 1996. So we've got a good repository of data. So a general practice nurse can actually go in through their systems and pull out data on patients who have received vaccines at their practice. They can even break it down by patients receiving vaccine by specific GPs. So you know your patients in general practice. So you'd be able to break it down and go, okay, how many of my under five-year-olds have got a flu vaccine this year? Or how many people who are pregnant at the moment have got their pertussis vaccine? So, okay, if this group of people didn't receive their vaccine, you can either pre-call them or you can send out a recall, which is a very common process in general practice. So you can reach out, you can either send them an SMS or you can send them a, a template letter to alert them to the fact that, you know, you're overdue for this vaccine. And we found time and time again that when you reach out to patients, that this is a very effective method. You know, we're all very busy and it's usually just that people hadn't thought about it or just forgot that they, they're due for something. So that's a very easy thing that general practice can do. The other thing you could do is offer vaccines opportunistically. So if someone comes into your practice uh, because they need a wound dressed or any other reason, um, even if they're slightly unwell, you still can look in their records and see if they do for, for a vaccination and you can still give them a vaccine. So that's, I would say those are the two things that general practice can do. To all our listeners, have a really, really great International Women's Day coming up on Wednesday, March 8th, 2023. The theme for International Women's Day 2023 is Cracking the Code Innovation for a Gender Equal Future. This theme is based on the United Nations 67th Commission on the Status of Women, their priority theme, Innovation and Technological Change, and Education in the Digital Age for Achieving Gender Equality and the Empowerment of All Women and Girls. International Women's Day 2023 will explore the impact of the digital gender gap on widening economic and social inequalities. Happy International Women's Day to all the women, trans and non-gender conforming people out there. Thanks to all those who contributed to the show today. Thank you for another stellar episode of Nursing Australia. Thank you for joining us. Remember, if you are listening right now on Apple or Google Podcasts, please don't forget to tap the subscribe button and on Spotify, click to follow. The more followers, the more nurses and healthcare professionals and those just interested in healthcare can access the latest happening in Australasian primary healthcare. I'm Matthew Zaledger. Thanks once again to the wonderful three women who joined us here today. You're listening to Nurse in Australia. Thanks for listening to Nursing Australia.